Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. This week on Woman on the Line, we hear some highlights from the activism at the Margins Conference. In the first half of the show... Kashifa Aslam, an RMIT researcher, looks at the woman behind the viral hashtag, I'll ride with you. Kashifa also explores whether their activism was real or symbolic. Later in the program, RMIT lecturer Pauline Anastasio discusses the silent activism of the Big Umbrella Foundation. We hope you enjoy the show. We all know I'll Ride With You made, uh, b- became a go- global phenomenon. And uh, within two hours of this tweet, uh, there were 44,000 shares. And within three days of this tweet, there were 4,40,000 shares. And uh, it became a global uh, trend. And uh, President Obama and many Hollywood celebrities and international leaders admired the tweet that how Australia handled um, the incident, which was not very pleasant. I'll divide my presentation into three parts. Uh, the story of two women behind the Sydney Siege tweet, uh, the role of media in, in this whole scenario, and real or symbolic activism. We'll just discuss it. So the most interesting part before this uh, that I want to share about this presentation is I was really intrigued about those two women. Who are they? Uh, who tweeted this? Why they tweeted this? So um, I contacted them. And to my surprise, they both replied to my email because I requested them for an interview. Um, They both agreed. So Rachel Jacobs gave her first interview after 2014, after the Sydney siege incident. And Tessa uh, Tessa Kam gave her first detailed interview to me. So that was an honor in any case. Thanks to both the women. I asked Rachel why she tweeted this, and um, what she shared was she grew up in 80s and 90s in Australia, and uh, she faced phenomenal racism while growing up in in Australia because her brother and herself, they were the only two brown kids in the school. Just imagine what would have happened to her. That was one thing that she she shared, that I'm I'm very sensitive about the people of color, that um, how they feel they they may not be let alone. Um, And I would share her words, which which are like, which she actually um, said about the whole thing. I think maybe I was more vigilant about racism and things like that because I'm a woman of color myself. I'm not Muslim, but I'm Indian, and I have experiences of discrimination myself. So I think maybe I was vigilant about other people experiencing racism, other people feeling left out. 
And I asked the same question from Tessa, that uh, how she got this idea. So first of all, she shared that it was the tweet of Rachel, uh, which actually wrote, I'll walk with you. And this wasn't her tweet. Uh, this wasn't her tweet, actually. She wrote it on her personal Facebook page. And her friend took a screenshot of that page, and sh uh, he shared it on Twitter. So it wasn't her. She, she didn't even know about it initially. And uh, while seeing that tweet making rounds, it was Tessa who got up, with, who came up with an idea of making "I'll ride with you" a hashtag. And then uh, another reason um, that she sh uh, she she went for this tweet was she felt that because she was in Sydney at that time and she also visited the city and she was also planning to go to the same cafeteria, but because she forgot her charger, so she couldn't reach there. That was her luck. So she said that. Um, I was seeing this pent-up anger in the city, and I was, and everybody was talking about the incident in social media, on media. Everybody was talking about it, and she could feel anger everywhere. So, what made her tweet, uh, or what made her wrote, make this tweet, was the anger that she observed in the city and everywhere. And then I would look, look into how media responded to the two women. These were the initial headlines. So, just imagine what was going on in the media. Melinda Devine wrote on 16 December 2014, the noxious and naive left in Daily Telegraph, this was her opinion piece, while people were suffering at the hands of an Islamic State-inspired terrorist in Martin Place, hashtag activists sprang to the defense of theoretical victim of an Islamophobia that wasn't occurring. I'll write with you was their catchphrase. So you just look it, in this article. They, the, the whole article was full of such like ideas, but what media was portraying was terrorist, uh, Islamophobia, but nobody explained what is actually Islamophobia. And then uh, the later part of her article was, the silly fat was started a thousand kilometers away by a Greens candidate who fantasized the whole thing. Denial, deflection, projection, they, they, they see themselves as morally superior to the rest of Australia, which they imagine um, as a sea of igno ignorant rednecks. So again, you would see terrorism, terrorist, Islamophobia, these kind of ideas in the media, but um, nothing positive was turning up. A blogger wrote about um, the woman. Um, you see, the, I've highlighted the word instead of just re reading the, the whole part. The left-leaning left Australians, left-leaning activists, anti-white man. So what actually we get the idea from the media was the people who are talking about and who are writing the, this tweet and the left wing is kind of something else, a, a separate group. And the, the dominant group is those who are thinking about the, the hostages and who are talking about, and of course later on, um, Katrina Dawson and Tori Johnson, they, they both died in the incident. So they were thinking as if these two women, two women are bringing up ideas of Muslims and Islam uh, instead of talking about the hostages and their crisis and what they were going through. So it, it, it kind of, the media came up with kind of two grouping. They divided the nation. They, they make it look as if there are other who, who are talking about Islam or Muslims or about Muslim women. So after, after seeing these kind of ideas in the media, what do you expect? There, there was an expected backlash against Muslims. And the easy target is Muslim women, because if you attack a man, he will retaliate. It's easy to target a woman who's, who's visibly Muslim, who you can just see in, in train or anywhere alone. 
media also came up with ideas like um, Islamist-inspired terrorist incident, um, and these kind of ideas were making rounds in the media. And another reason of why the media actually hit, it, hit out at these women was uh, she tweeted at 5 p.m. while the siege was still going on. So it was not that the siege, siege got over and she tweeted this. It was during the siege that, that that's the reason uh, they, they, got, they got all the negative attraction or all the negative criticism from the media. People who were living in Australia, they might have seen the Shahada flag, and the moment that flag was shown on the, on, on the window of that um, Lint Cafe, it was assumed that Muslims are behind the whole thing. So it was not that man, it was not that criminal, it was not one man, it was not the aggressive or the heinous crime of one man, it was Islam and Muslim that came up in the media. And then what happened to the two women after this tweet? Both the women got death threats, both the women received endless hit um, uh, social media um, tweets, hate, death threats, gendered um, threats of gendered violence, to the extent that both the women had to go for counseling, both the women shut down all their media pages. Um, one of them had gone through such worse time that she lost her job. Um, she is still facing mental health issues. She hasn't come out of it because she, people were looking for her, for her in Sydney because her pictures were published in the media. And she got the threats that we are looking for your address. So at the end of the day, she had to leave Sydney and she moved to Melbourne because she lived all her life in Melbourne and her family was in Melbourne as well. And if she was trying to contact with her family at the time, it was through social media because she, she, she has been very active on social media. But she couldn't go online because of all the hate that she would receive from all, all the angles. So, um, and then it was, um, it was not only uh, she, she, she lost a job, it, it also per affected her personal relation with her partner, which at the end of the day broke. Now I would, um, I would, would like to talk about the idea of real or symbolic activism. So if you, if you look at this tweet, in one way it actually uh, came up with, it was, it was not some sort of a practical help that was requested to people and just go and stand with a woman and walk with him. The, the idea that seems to, to go for, for the, this idea that was behind this tweet was, um, people should think a bit differently. The, main, the media, the thing that they were, the, the negative message that they were getting from the media, they should think differently. They should perceive human as a human, and they should perceive the act of that person as act of one person, not, not whole Muslims, not, not all the people who are Muslim. So it, was, it seems to be a symbolic act. And another reason, uh, another idea that the tweet came up with and it was criticized uh, was it, it, it saw Muslim women as um, some sort of oppressed object who are needed to be guided, who are needed to be taken care of, who are, who are, uh, who are not being able to speak for themselves, so somebody else is speaking on their behalf, somebody else is thinking for them, somebody else is um, uh, thinking about their safety because they needed to be guided, they needed to be protected, they are needed to be led by someone else. So this was another prominent idea that was... Um, because of which even Muslims, some of Muslims also criticize um, the tweet.
So some of the women, Muslim women, supported the idea. And they did not support it because of the fact that somebody is going to take their hand and guide them. But the whole idea brought a positive change, an, another perception in people that you can think positively or everybody knows it's a time when everybody's angry. So think in a different way. Think something else. Take, think of Muslims as human. Uh, and not as if everybody is responsible for that one act. So it was also about um, thinking differently. And then there were practical examples on ground as well, like Nazim Hussain. He mentioned uh, I'm a, in I'm a, I'm a Celebrity Program that he's, his sister covers her head, and uh, she was really anxious. And the next day, she had to go for work. And after this tweet happened, she actually appreciated the whole thing, and she messaged her um, her brother that she's, she, she, she's happy now that something else is going on and this tweet is making rounds. So this was another example of some real things did happen after the tweet. It was not only just symbolic, but um, it was observed on ground as well. Now I would look into the, the life of the, the two women. Uh, Rachel Jacobs is a Greens candidate. She stood for elections in 2013. And then uh, she stood for elections in 2018 as well. Uh, so she, she joined politics, and the reason of joining politics was uh, of, of receiving racism throughout her life, and she wanted to stand up for, for people of color, um, realizing that people go through a tough time in Australia. So um, it was that the, her whole life now, she's in politics. Um, she's also in a academia. She, she's a teacher. So she, her, whole la, her whole life um, actually expresses that she has been taking stands. And it was, um, it's not just this one tweet. It's her whole life is in politics now. And she's been teaching about it. And uh, she's taking stand for environment, for education, uh, and about the second woman. Tessa come. Uh, Tessa actually created her blog in 2009. She has a blog, Silence Without, and in that blog, she um, she raised issues, issues like uh, she wrote about Sydney siege incident there um, on her blog. She wrote about um, a white man on her blog that I'll explain why she wrote, and uh, she also wrote about um, the Christchurch incident. Yeah, so she um, has been writing uh, in her blog about these issues. And the reason why she attracted a lot of hate for writing white uh, about white men was she was very active on a blog on of science and technology. And there was there were my white men predominantly predominantly like active on that blog. And they were trolling one Asian woman over and over again, because of calling her toxic. And according to Tessa, the behavior of white men were even a hundred times more toxic than that Asian woman whom they were trolling. So she actually wrote that piece. In 2014, uh, I guess four months before this incident, and that article or on her blog on white men was picked up by media. The reason of receiving death threats was also that piece on white men. Unfortunately, it, the Sydney siege incident happened after that, and people picked things out of her blog and then accused her of hate against white men. And then I, uh, I asked from two women, uh, do, do they think that they patronize Muslim women? And uh, I can share the replies with you uh, if we have time. We still have four minutes. Yeah, okay. So I'll share Rachel's reply first. I can completely understand why some Muslims think that. 
I don't think it was intended to be, and I think it was genuinely offered in the spirit of walking side by side, literally, not metaphorically. Some claim the movement is patronizing, forcing misplaced support upon those who need sp space rather than spotlight. They may have a point, but there is no doubting its good intentions, and perhaps we need it more for ourselves as a reminder that there are reasons and they are reasoned and tolerant people that walk among us, amongst us, publicly disempowering the trolls. And um, Tessa replied, one of the things I love about the hashtag is that it is a mixed woman inspired by a brown woman to help other mostly brown and black women. It's an acknowledgement of the reality of the circumstances that Muslim women will be and were and are a significant target for bygods um, when out in public and that they should not be alone in this. This is not a savior reaching down to lift someone up. This is a woman who experienced bigotry looking f out for each other as peers and as equals. The solidarity comes from understanding and empathy, not pity. I would uh, now kind of end my presentation, um, and at the end I would like to share. Rachel and Tessa received thousands of likes globally. Uh, however, both women received major criticism in Australia. This was due in part to the perception that they had sided with Muslims. While the media highlighted the issues of Islamophobia, it did, not, it did very little to interrogate or define what Islamophobia was. References were frequently made to terrorism. The tide of the popular opinion turned on both women, painting them as either haters of white men or left-wing activists. As a woman of color, Rachel drew attention to the gendered and racist nature of the public commentary, commentary leveled against her. Because they are forced to shut down their social media accounts, both women felt silenced and that their actions were largely misunderstood. I thank you all. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. The Big Umbrella Foundation is a non-profit soup kitchen. In this next presentation, RMIT lecturer Pauline Anastasio shows us why activism comes in all shapes and sizes. So, just to start, please let me explain a few things. I use our throughout the talk because the Big Umbrella encourages a policy of inclusion. And so using our makes us all feel like we belong, like we are all, um, we're encouraged to express ownership. Sorry, with that phrase. I use words like homelessness, sleeping rough, friends on the street, working poor, because we can't easily categorise the people who come to the soup kitchen. So I won't be talking about the homeless all the time, because a large proportion of our, um, our participants are not homeless. And um, the other thing is all of the images that um, I use in the presentation are taken from our social media pages. Uh, we're very careful not to take advantage of our community by allowing anyone to take photographs. So we have a specific person who's assigned to taking photographs of the events um, and of particular people who we know are happy to have their images on social media. So, and particularly as a photographer, um, I'm very aware of not exploiting the people who come to see us, you know, on a weekly basis. The Big Umbrella is a not-for-profit that was established by Justin Dickinson. The organisation began, began with the funding of a rehabilitation centre and school for homeless children in Nepal. 
And in 2011, Justin started up a soup kitchen here in Melbourne. With the help of volunteers and corporate and community participants, the soup kitchen redistributes approximately 400 meals a week that are shared with homeless and marginalised people in Melbourne. Incredibly, we have rescued over 218 tonnes of food and have shared 100,000 meals in the last nine years. The bulk of the food they share at the soup kitchen is collected by their partners, Oz Harvest Australia and the Food Bank Australia, who collect surplus food from corporate events, supermarkets, restaurants and local Melbourne food and drink companies. The Big Umbrella also has the support of local bakeries, restaurants and markets who donate food at the end of the business day, each Wednesday and Thursday. There are no paid positions at the organisation. It's run purely by volunteers. I've been volunteering at this soup kitchen on a weekly basis for two and a half years and I feel personally committed and connected to it. But I also acknowledge that a charity soup kitchen is fraught with political and social contradictions that I've been unable to fully resolve for myself. Just as I was unable to resolve the idea of giving or not giving money to people on the street, which is really what pushed me into volunteering, it was a question of dignity on the street. I chose this particular organisation because it was committed to establishing community around the sharing of food and most importantly, it does that through food recovery. Very early on, it occurred to me that it was just the width of a table that separated the volunteers who were serving the food from the people who had lined up for food. Just a half a metre made the difference between where we stood and which one of us needed help. Where we were positioned, that half metre of separation was that metaphorical border that indicated social division and exclusion. Food insecurity is caused by a range of circumstances, the loss of a job and, as a result, the loss of accommodation, bad government policies and practices in terms of providing housing, illness, low or unsustainable employment or unexpected financial pressures. We also see people who have left difficult family situations and students who struggle living away from home. Food insecurity is transient for some as people's circumstances change, though we have seen what seems to be an increasing number of people who are experiencing chronic food insecurity. As I said, the charity soup kitchen model has obvious problems, although some models are better than others. Over the time that I've volunteered at this soup kitchen, I've come to understand that not all soup kitchens are equal. They don't operate in the same ways. And importantly, those better models can promote social inclusion for people who are without a doubt living in the margins and who rely on these organisations for food and community. I call this talk quiet activism because the people who volunteer for the big umbrella don't think of themselves as activists. But when I mentioned on the way to an event in the bus, um, I was thinking of talking about them as quiet activists. They sparked up. It was, it was sort of a revelation to them that they were, in fact, activists. But they also appreciated the term quiet activists. They didn't want to make a show of their um, participation. So the reality for volunteers is, well, it's a number of things. They talk about giving back. They believe in food rescue and sustainability. They hate waste. They understand inequality and discrimination. They're angry that governments can't solve homelessness and food insecurity and frustrated that our society finds it difficult to cope with mental health issues, especially in the young. 
and we see a lot of young people at the soup kitchen with mental health issues. They witness the working poor who come to collect food for their families and they're trying to fill those gaps and for all of those reasons, they're activists. Uh, For a background in food security in this country, I've drawn on, in particular, two articles that were published early this year in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. The first article is titled Food Insecurity and Socioeconomic Disadvantage in Australia. The authors are Severat, Callis and Flateau. And the second one is titled Measuring and Understanding Food Insecurity in Australia, a systematic review by McKay, Haynes and Dunn. Food security is simply defined as when people can get enough food to eat that is safe, that they like to eat, and that helps them to be healthy. They must be able to get this food in ways that make them feel good about themselves and their families. That's food security. Food security comprises of four aspects. The availability of food, the physical and financial resources to access food, the ability to safely prepare, cook and store food, and the stability of supply. In Australia, food security is estimated by a single measure. And I mention this because across the world, uh, food insecurity is measured differently. And in Australia at the moment, people are trying to gather the ways in which people are measuring food insecurity. So there's not one model at the moment. But the single measure is um, a question that is asked. And the question is, in the last 12 months, was there any time you've run out of food and not been able to purchase more? Using me- this measure, the prevalence of food insecurity among the Australian population is conservative, conservatively estimated at 5% or 1 million people. But the researchers argue that the numbers are far greater than this and some estimations rise to 3.6 million people in Australia. So a sense of community means many things, but for people on the street it means having people who can offer support, people who are caring, non-judgmental and reliable, even if the expression of that is only a meal and a chat. The comfort that comes with this very basic provision of reliability is a form of stability that is crucial to the well-being of anyone, but especially to those people who are living rough. I had never realised that the idea of reliability is something that helps people to feel um, stable in their lives. So if we're not there and we are not ever not there, <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's a, that's, a real, that's a real issue for people who are living rough. And that's all for Woman on the Line today. You just heard from RMIT lecturer Pauline Anastasio discussing the quiet activism of the Big Umbrella Foundation. Earlier in the show, we heard from Kashifa Aslam, an RMIT researcher on the woman behind the viral hashtag, I'll Ride With You. Don't forget to tune in next week as Anya Saravanan brings us more content from Activism at the Margins Conference. Woman on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Woman on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au slash womanontheline. The theme music for Woman on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Lee Tigre. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ayan Shirwa.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.